Amen. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Wakey, wakey. Good to see you. My name's Adam. I am the associate pastor here at Antioch, and uh, I have the privilege of preaching this morning. But before we do, I just want to do a quick announcement. If you are someone who's in our young adults and career ministry, there, that's right, that's right. There is a retreat coming up uh, September 3rd through 5th at Tonto Rim outside Payson, and you should go. It would be a lot of fun. And so I just want to put that before you if you didn't know that. So if you're post-college, but you're not yet in any emerging families zone where you're married and having kids or whatever, and you're in that middle season of career and young adultness, whatever that means, then you should go and be a part of this awesome trip. Uh, it's a way to get away with some friends, to engage with Jesus, and Lord willing to be changed by the presence of God. So go check it out. All right, I'm going to dive right in because that's what I do when I preach. And we're going to go right into this thing. And we're going to be in a series right now called Through the Noise. Our desire and our aim as, as a community and specifically as the pastors and leadership of the church is we kept feeling uh, just the, the sensitivity of the Spirit of God encouraging us to draw attention to the amount of noise that's happening in everyday life. That there's this over-inundating obnoxious amount of volume that's happening from all sides of us, from all kinds of people, all kinds of issues, whether it's social media, politics, culture, um, you know, workplace, family life, the demands and expectations, the drivenness of our society, different things, where there's a barrage is the word that we keep feeling that's because there's a barrage of noise. And not all noise is bad, but a lot of it, even, even good noise can be distracting from the important stuff. And so we're trying to discern what what really matters? What do we actually listen to? How do we respond to it? What's the effects of these noises that, that's coming around us all the time in our lives? And so we talked specifically about all the noise. Then we talked about the effects. Last week, Trev did an awesome job talking about the emotional impact of unfiltered noise where we just we take on these lies and these opinions and these voices and expectations of our culture and how we have the highest rate of anxiety and depression ever in American history. Like that's crazy. And, 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 and we want God to meet us in those places to bring peace because that's what he is. He's the Prince of Peace. And so today what I want to do is I want to mention something that Travis mentioned last week was he talked about holding every thought captive. And I want to show us in the Bible where that comes from real quick. And it's in 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Travis talked about the value of recognizing first and foremost that just because you think something doesn't make it true. Can I get an amen for that one? Just because you think something doesn't make it true. We can deceive ourselves. We can lie to ourselves. We can believe our own lies where we, we think something we're like, oh man, you know, and I guess, I guess I'm a failure because the thought went from one ear to the other that I'm a failure in this or whatever. And we start to adopt identity and belief systems and ideologies based on thoughts that are not captive, that are not being filtered. And there's a great maturing lesson that God wants to deposit into us as a people that we can actually hold that thought captive. And the word captive there is the same word that shows up multiple times in scripture about an army overcoming another army. Amen. So there's like an aggressive spirit that it's telling us to have towards our thoughts. We're not just kind of like passive, like, oh yeah, I thought it, whatever. No, you need to say, what am I, you need to think about what you're thinking about, right? Like, what was that? Hold on. Does that align with the word of God? Does, does that sound like the voice of God? And using the word of God to discern what is the Lord and what is not, then we say, oh, it's not. We kick it out. 
And if it is, we adopt it. And the enemy loves to throw a little bit of lie with the truth. So sometimes we actually have to edit. Okay, some of that's true. Some of it isn't. Lord, give me the wisdom and the discernment to, to adopt what is true, but throw out what is wicked, right? So this is something scripture because the two previous verses are pretty important into why this matters. In 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3, it says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what we need to understand is, and I guess the question that you, I need to ask you is, do you know that you are to wage war? And maybe the precursor question is, do you know that you're in a war? So I've been carrying this message on my heart for over a month, and I've been praying through it, and I've been feeling a great deal of weight about it because I think that I'm a fairly normal guy. Like, maybe I'm a little bit naive to say that out loud because maybe you're like, no, you're kind of strange. But I think that I fall in the spectrum of whatever normal is. I think I fall somewhere in the middle of pretty normal guy. But on, on the, the potential of looking a bit foolish today, I'm actually going to tell you what the Bible says about a war that's actually happening that's unseen. And you need to know, and I need to know, and the church needs to wake up to the reality that there's an actual war waging, raging right now. It's happening right now in our everyday all around us. Amen. We need to know this. There is a war that's happening and we are called to fight in it. Actually, the reality is we're going to fight in it whether we want to or not. So it's, you can choose to be engaged in the fight or not, but either way, you're either, the picture I had in my mind as I've been interceding for you specifically was I saw people who were choosing to ignore the war and they're walking around a minefield and they're about to step on a bomb because they choose to ignore that it exists. And I'm going, oh my gosh, Lord, wake us up. Make me be sober-minded that we realize that there is a real reality that's even more real and more tangible than our everyday natural reality that's happening all around us. And, and what is the prize of this war? What's the prize? It's the souls of every man, woman, and child on the planet. That's what's being fought for is your soul. So I would encourage you to take that seriously and say, I want to not lose my soul. I want my soul to be on the winning side of this fight. And I ask you to engage in the fight with me this morning. Okay? All right, so when I talk about spiritual warfare, I just want to bring up a couple thoughts here. One is I want you to re recognize that I keep talking about the spiritual realm. This is not a war in the natural. I'm not talking about like Ukraine and Russia or even a fight that you had with your boss or a spouse or a friend. Like the natural sense of war, though there's there probably is very much spiritual elements to those things. But I'm talking about one that is in the unseen. We're talking about uh, not human-centered natural realities. We're talking about a, a spirit realm. We find this in Ephesians 6. I want to read this in verse 12. For our struggle, or another translation uses the word battle, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There is a real spiritual realm that is overlaid on our natural realm, and there's a war that is raging. And what we need to learn from this one quick note here is that the war isn't against flesh and blood. We need to be mature enough to receive and agree and, and modify how we live to that truth. Otherwise, we will cause a tremendous amount of friendly fire as we start to attack people versus the enemy because we start to identify people as the enemy and they are not. You hear me? We need to be able to identify that people, even mean people, 
people who do hurtful things are ultimately not the enemy that this is talking about. What's hurting them, and what hurt people hurt people, by the way. So what's hurting them is causing them to lash out and hurt us. There's a spiritual reality that they're losing and they're, they're struggling in. And really we need to wage war and intercession for them that they might have the victory. There's a place to start to love people and not hurt people in the midst of our warfare. When I was in high school, um, unfortunately there just wasn't a whole lot of Christians. I was pretty much the only male Christian in my high school, my age at least. And so about a 1200 person high school, um, I was known as the Bible guy or the Christian kid or whatever. And I was not, <laughs> I was not the authority on anything Jesus, but I'd loved, I genuinely loved Jesus. And so it was common for people to say, hey, Adam, I wanna ask a question about the Bible or about Jesus or whatever. And there was a specific day where I was in art class and I was sitting up on the stool and do you, I don't know what your art room was like, but mine had the taller bar height tables and the stools where you'd like make your clay pots, kind of picture it in your mind, go back to your early art days or whatever. And I'm sitting there working and making my thing. And a guy named Michael sitting at the same table, but facing me adjacent at the table says, hey, Adam, like, you know, you're a Christian. You, you know, you believe the Bible. Like, what does Jesus say about? And he starts asking me questions about what Jesus' opinions are about the world today and what he would have to say about different things. And so as best as I can, I'm like, well, I, I know the Bible teaches this and God says this and this is how God feels about you. And, you know, I start telling him about Jesus. And as I'm sharing this, a kid named Jacob in our art class comes up from behind me. And Jacob is what one would define as like a goth kid. He wears all black trench coat, has the big metal uh, chain from his wallet to his belt loop, uh, has the high heel black boots that's real high and seems to never smile. I don't, does that kind of paint a picture? And so, you know, Jacob comes up behind me and he had taken off the chain off of his wallet and his belt loop and he puts it around my neck and he pulls me off my stool and my body weight falls and he begins to choke me out in the middle of art class. Now, luckily, I'm an incredible martial artist. <laughs> and I walked to and swung around and did my thing. And I was able to get out of it. And we got into this really pretty significant fist fight where the art teacher, this gal, couldn't do it. So she goes and gets Mr. Yancey. Mr. Yancey is a very large man. And no one fights with Mr. Yancey. So Mr. Yancey comes in. He's a science teacher. And he breaks us up. And we're like behaving ourselves. And then we find ourselves being ushered off to the principal's office. It was, my world was spinning. Like, I remember all the blood rushing to my face, feeling very embarrassed. Have you ever felt publicly embarrassed? And it was like, your face was like, it's gonna pop because all the blood's like right here. And you're going, oh, it just happened. And your adrenaline's pumping. And I'm like, what in the world? And I'm sitting there and the principal's like, do you want to press charges? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to press charges. Like, he's not a, he's a kid, not a criminal. I mean, you know, but, but I do want to understand why, and he needs help. So we, we agreed that we wouldn't press charges, but that he has to get some sort of help because why would he do this? Like we didn't understand, there was no explanation to his behavior. So they agreed to it and he ended up getting suspended from school. And two weeks later, I'm walking down Main Street by myself, Main Street, downtown Indiana, a small town in Indiana called Madison. I'm walking and on the sidewalk, I see walking towards me is Jacob. And I remember feeling nervous at first, like, oh man. But I remember, I remember specifically saying, okay, Lord, what do I do? And I remember the Lord just saying, I got you. That was the, that way he spoke my language. And he says, I got you. And I was like, he's got me. And this like supernatural sense of peace. And the reason why I say it's a, a supernatural peace, because it wasn't something I mustered up in my own self. I was nervous, but a peace overcome me. And I felt unusual confidence. Like I felt okay. And so I just keep walking. He keeps walking. All of a sudden he's boom, right there in front of me. And he goes, I need to talk to you. And I was like, all right, Jacob, what's up, man? And he goes, I need to tell you how sorry I am. 
I know, I'm like, what? He goes, I'm so sorry that I did that to you. I said, Jacob, help me, help me understand what in the world happened. Why, why did you do that? He goes, well, I was sitting in the art class working on my project, and I hear across the room, you start talking about Jesus and the Bible, and all of a sudden this voice just starts yelling in my ear, you have to kill him. You have to kill him. And he said it got so loud that I had no choice. I, I felt overcome by it. And just to get the voice to go away, I, like, I found myself having to obey it, and I just found myself going over and trying to kill you. And I was like, Jacob, that ain't okay, man. And he's, uh, he's like, I know, I know, I know. And I'm like, why, why, where do you think this voice came from? And he goes, well, he's like, as of, of the last year or so, he's like, I've really gotten into some like Ouija boards and tarot cards and some Satan worshiping stuff. And, and he's like, I, th I think it came from that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you know, I'm no expert, but you know, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. And he goes, well, what, what can I do? How can I? how can I make this right with you, man? And I'm like, well, uh, you can come to church with me on Sunday. And he's like, um, okay. You know, he's really weirded out by that request, but I was like, eh, you try to kill me. You owe me something. <laughs> so Sunday rolls around. I go and I pick him up and I drive him to church and he sits next to me in church. And I don't know about you, but church building, building on any other street, on any other place in the world. But when the people of God start to acknowledge the presence of God, something happens. And so as we were sitting in a normal church building just like this, just sitting about, about five rows back, center aisle, and we're just sitting there, all of a sudden, worship starts happening, and God starts to show up. And then the Bible's preached, and God's still showing up and moving to people. And then it gets to a place of response, and the pastor gives an altar call, and he talks about how Jesus died for our sins. So he went on the cross, died, and then resurrected so that our sins might be forgiven and defeated so that we might have a relationship with God again. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you can have that relationship established. And so he, he preaches this good news. He preaches the gospel. And all of a sudden he says, if you want this, stand up on your feet. And people start standing up in the room and all of a sudden Jacob stands up. Amen. And I'm so disoriented. I'm serious. I'm so disoriented. I, I'm assuming that he's confused about what's going on. I'm, I'm serious. I was like, he don't understand what's really going on. And... <laughs> And so I even like start to like pull on his like, you know, Jenko jeans, black baggy, anybody from the hood all days, you know, cause he's goth kid, you know? So I'm like pulling on his jeans and I'm like, I'm like, Hey man, like, are you just going through the motions? Like, is this, you just assume this is what we do. And like, you're just kind of going like on a ride at a, at a, you know, at the park, like you do when you go to like Disney world and you're just following all the other people. Are you really like, and he's like, man, and he like knocks my hand away and he goes, basically, I don't remember the exact words, but he just says, he says, I can be redeemed. I want to be redeemed. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he walks up and he gives his life to Jesus. I'm going, holy cow. Jacob is not my enemy. Jacob is not the one I wage war against. But our battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. You need to understand that we are in war. Do you get this? I'm not a kook. I'm just preaching the word of God. And the Bible tells us we need to wake up, open our eyes and pay attention because there's a war that's, that's waging around us all the time and we will fall victim to it whether we're engaged or not. You can't just be ignorant about it. And we can't make people our enemy. So now that we understand this, I wanna talk about how we wage some war. In Ephesians 6, where that passage comes from, I wanna read around that passage a little bit more starting in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world, and against the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to take this, take up a shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So let me ask you this question. Why would you need armor if you're not at war? I mean, we, 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 this is a Sunday school lesson, is it not? We send our kids in there and they're talking about like, they have songs that they talk about putting things on and stuff. But we, we are sending our kids off to war. A, a real situation. And we need to be sober-minded that God is actually telling us that we need to put on the armor of God because there is an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy your life. And we need to be prepared on how to defend ourselves in the spiritual realm and recognizing that the spiritual realm overlaps on the natural and it affects everything in our everyday life. It's a real thing. So let's just talk about it real quick. The belt of truth. First of all, if you don't have your belt on, it's all You feel exposed. You're vulnerable. Right? I'm not trying to be silly. I'm actually kind of being serious. The belt of truth is what keeps you together. The belt of truth is what God says about himself and what God says about you. And the enemy is a one-trick pony, friends. He is smart, he is cunning, but ultimately it comes down to one thing. He wants you to believe a lie. And that lie is either about who he is or the lie is about who, he's, who God says you are. And if he can get you to doubt or disagree with the understanding of who God is, he's got a foothold in your life. If he can get you to believe or doubt who God says you are, he has a stronghold in your life. Do you understand this? That's how it works. So the truth is what protects us. It what keeps us from being vulnerable to the enemy. It holds up the pants, holds up the drawers, right? So we need to recognize that we want the truth of God to be resonating. But how do we know what truth is if we don't know the word of God? Amen. We don't know what truth or lie is when we hear it because we don't have anything to compare it to. So the word of God is what holds things together. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. This covers your heart. It covers your core. And what's at the heart, what's at the core is your identity. Knowing your identity as a slave to righteousness versus a slave to sin. This is somehow the most difficult things, not for non-believers, but for believers to continue to operate in. We will get saved and we'll say, thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. I love it. And then two months pass and we're going, I'm just not good enough. I think God's mad at me. Like, if I just need to work harder. How is that the gospel message? The whole gospel message is that you're, you're dead in sin and then Jesus resurrects you and Jesus brings you new life and Jesus calls you a new creation. He makes you now a slave to righteousness. The last two months, his work is done in forever. But there's this place of saying, I need to remind myself that I'm covered as a righteous son, a righteous daughter of God. And though I may sin and though I may fall, sure, there is new hope and new life in Jesus today, right now. And I will not agree with the enemy that I'm a slave to my past. Some of us walk around and we're stuck with our past because we've not adopted our slaves as righteous people. And there's a place for us to step into that. The sandals is where we walk in peace and readiness to play, proclaim the gospel. There's an act activation piece here. Sandals is something you put on to do something. 
So this is a way for us to put on the armor of God to say we are actually carrying with us the peace of God and the gospel message of God everywhere we go. Scripture talks about how the saints of God will walk and everywhere their foot treads is now handed over to the, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of darkness. Do you believe that when you walk around your home? Do you believe that when you walk around at work or in your classroom? Are you carrying the peace of God on you? Are you carrying the gospel message on your life that you are a redeemed man or woman of God? God wants you to put it on every day and say, I'm everywhere my foot treads, I'm claiming it for Jesus today. It's the Lord's and not the enemy's. Next is the shield of faith. It extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. I want to note one thing. I love this. It says, in which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Did you hear what I just said? All. I love that that word's in there. It's not some of them. It's not sometimes. Everything, the arrow, self-hatred, shame, despair, failure. Can you imagine the arrows that the enemy is shooting at you right now? You know the mantras that you hear in your head. You know the lies that he's aiming at you. He's the accuser. That's one of the names of the devil is he's the great accuser. He's the adversary. It says his native tongue is lies. Every time he talks, it's a lie. You just know it. Yet we hear it and it's just this arrow. But you know what? When you operate in faith, it casts out the accuser's voice. No, I disagree with you. I'm going to pull up my shield of faith because faith overcomes fear. And that arrow of fear, I distinguish it in the name of Jesus. I will choose faith in what God has said over me versus what you say. You know, oh, you want to accuse me, God? I, I agree with God's word and his truth. And I'm going to live accordingly by faith, even if you say that. And even if there's some truth in it, even if I have messed up, you know what? God says, I'm a new creation. I'm going to operate in, in faith in Jesus' name. We need to pick up our shields of faith this morning. The helmet of salvation. This covers our head. It's our mind. This is what we talked about a lot last week, but this is a power of, of God to renew and restore our mind. And it's a helmet that you put on because I love this. And it's what it is, it's the helmet of salvation. How often do you meditate on what Jesus did for you on the cross? Because if you're feeling right now a great deal of anxiety and depression and, and despair, obviously go see a doctor, do, do what you need to do. Like I thank God for people that do that for a living and help people. But you know what? I bet if you meditate on what Jesus did for you on the cross every day, you'll find some victory in your life. Put on that helmet of salvation. God, thank you that you nailed my depression to the cross in Jesus name. Thank you, God, that you're renewing my family right now in Jesus name. That what was done on the cross is big enough for every sin, every failure, every strife. God, it's yours right now on the cross in Jesus name. You start to meditate on the salvation of Jesus, you will start to experience a breakthrough and hope. This is how we wage war. And the last one is the sword of the spirit. This is the only offensive weapon that God gives us out of this list. Isn't that interesting? We get all this list and there's one thing that's offensive and you know what it is? It's his word. The sword is the word of God. In scripture it says that the battle belongs to the Lord. You're called to disagree with the, God, or with the devil, cling tightly to God, and let God do all the heavy lifting for you. That's what we're called to do. So yes, we do fight one way, and which is with the sword. But the sword is still God's word. It's still him doing it. Do you see that? It's still his, using his words against the enemy, not your own. And where we see this beautifully done in scripture is when Jesus is tempted and he goes out and he spends 40 days and he's fasting. And just for the record, I think some people get it wrong when they, they trash Jesus for, for being out for 40 days saying, oh, the devil's, you know, it's when he's, Jesus is at his weakest moment. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's out all alone. He's like, I don't know about you, but yes, I get hangry and I have a bit of bad attitude when I fast and I need to repent of that. But I'll also say the purpose of fasting is to 
resist things of the natural to feast on the things that are of God and supernatural, right? So about, about my experience with fasting is every time I choose to operate in a fast, I, I walk away more spiritually filled and, and equipped for what God wants to do in my life. So I'm pretty sure Jesus, after 40 days of feasting on his father, he's in pretty prime shape, you know? And so when the devil comes and, and he tries to tempt him, he says, oh, do this and I'll give you all of the kingdom of the earth. You know, he tries to tempt him. And then he says, oh, if you're really God, turn that stone into bread if you're really hungry. And he tries to find ways to manipulate and lie and deceive the Lord. What weapon does Jesus pull out to defend the devil? Scripture. He pulls out the Bible and he uses, he models for us what it's like to wage war against the enemy when temptation comes our, comes our way. This is a powerful weapon and we need to use it. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, I want to read that really quick. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to be succumb to the enemy's schemes and, and, and plans and opinions. There's a grace offered by God that allows us to overcome it time and time again. But in this passage, a lot of theologians kind of narrow some of this language down to three major attacks. And for the sake of this conversation that we're going through this series, I'll say three noises, three types of noises that the enemy loves to throw at us that causes wrath, that causes destruction, that causes harm towards you. And they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to break these three down real quick and talk about what they are and how we can identify these noises so we can resist them and agree with the Lord and resist the enemy. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the world, in a nutshell, is the broken state of sin that's around us every day in our natural world. There's a spiritual reality to it and a physical. Physical being just, you know, disease and famine and natural physical problems. Um, I even like to think about how like heaven, I bet like bread won't mold and leaves won't wilt. Like nothing dies. Everything stays alive and flourishes in heaven. But this is a result that we experience these things on earth because sin, sin ushered all these things in, right? And then there's like the spiritual, the world context, which is like the ideologies of the world, the ways of the world, the motivations of the world. These things trying to pull and sway us. And every culture and every place in the world has its own variation of it. In America, I would say it's selfishness. We are selfish people. We're entitled people. I would say it's the American dream. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with working hard. The Bible talks a lot about working hard and everything you do unto the Lord. But when you put your hope and your identity, and you make that thing your God, it's a problem, Amen. right? I love the way it's said in a book by uh, C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. In this book, if you've never read it, it's a really fun read, but everything's upside down. So it's written by a demon named Screwtape, and he's writing a 
letter to his nephew, Wormwood, who he's trying to raise up to be a good, strong demon. So every time it talks about anyone like the patient or, or those, like in a negative sense, it's speaking about Christians. And every time it talks about the enemy, it's talking about God. So everything's upside down. Does that make sense? So I want to read a passage from it and what it's talking about for those who are starting to find success in this world. This is in chapter 28 of the Screwtape Letters. If one's middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. I want to say that again. He feels that he is finding his place in it. As a man succeeds in this world, I'm really finding my place in the world. Really what's happening is it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation his widening circles of acquaintances, his developing sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of really being at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the younger are generally less unwilling to die to self than the middle-aged and elderly. There's something about being enamored by our world that makes us lose touch of the spiritual reality of who God's called us to be. Again, there's nothing wrong with being prosperous. There's nothing wrong with being successful. Just don't make it your God. Amen. Do not worship the things of this world. Because if you love the world, the things of God is not in that person. That's what we just read. So there has to be a place of acknowledging the world, being appreciative of what God brings in this world, but do not make it your master. But there's good news. In John 16, Jesus is speaking. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So the voice and the noise of the world, Jesus has overcome it. You do not have to succumb to that noise. That you have the ability to resist the world and agree with God. Number two, the flesh. The flesh is our sinful fallen state, pre-Jesus, pre the work of Christ in us. The flesh is, and, and as new creations... We are a new creation. It is a done deal based on the work of the cross. But sometimes we believe the lies that we're still the old creation and we still revert back to old creation behavior. You are not a sinner if you love Jesus who sometimes does good things. The Bible says that you're a saint who sometimes just chooses to sin. But those are not the same thing. You were saved. You were redeemed by Jesus if you follow Jesus, if you accepted the Lord. But sometimes our own vain imagination, our selfish ambition, our own fleshly longings and desires, we give ourselves those things. It's called sin and it destroys us. So sometimes that voice that we're hearing, that noise, it's us putting noise into the air. This isn't some other outside voice. This is us adding noise and commotion all around us because of the choices and decisions we make. I find people, including myself, where we're having a really hard time. It feels like, man, I'm just being under attack when in reality, we've reaped in the flesh, so we're sowing, or we've sowed in the flesh and we're reaping death in consequence of our sin, and we're sitting there trying to find some enemy to blame. And really, I've made my own bed and I'm laying in it. Like I've chosen addiction, I've chosen pain, I've chosen rebellion, I've chosen sinful behaviors that the Bible is explicitly clear about, and then I'm dealing with the consequence of it, and I'm trying to look to somebody else to say, yeah, I'm just being attacked. The devil's out to get me. Well, no, like you, are, you need to repent. Repentance is beautiful. Repentance is good. Repentance is healing. And God's arms are open wide. He's not looking to rub your nose in it and shame you. He's saying, I've taken your shame. Come to me. Let me restore you. Let me, let me rub out that noise and let me hear my voice instead. 
Come to me and I will, I will take your burdens and I will heal you and I will restore you. Romans 8, 5 and 6 says it this way. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. You know what peace has? Not a lot of noise. So when you agree with the Spirit and you tune your decision-making to the Spirit and you start to, start to pursue holiness and righteousness and you don't give yourself up to temptation and sin and flesh, peace rushes in. Peace is a beautiful thing. Life rushes in. Fulfillment, purpose, a satisfied, content heart. This is what God wants to give you. And the good news is this for this one in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Grace is available to you this morning to, yes, forgive you of sin, but grace is also available to you this morning so that you can walk free from it moving forward. God always provides a way. Always. We can never say, I had no choice. You did, you, we always have a choice to agree with the Lord or not. And the last one, the devil. I want to start off by being really clear. The devil is real. He's real. According to a Barna study that was done over 10 years ago, so I'm assuming the numbers are actually not better, if I had to guess, but said that 40% of Christians, 4 out of 10 Christians, don't believe the devil's a real being. They believe he's an evil representation, like a symbol of, of just bad. But they actually don't believe he's a real being. But if you agree with the Bible, we don't have that privilege to just kind of chalk it up at a, a cloud. They could be equivalent to God. They were proud and they were arrogant and they, they idolized themselves over the Lord. They want to worship themselves over God and be equals with God and they are not. So God kicked them out. I also want to let you know that in Genesis 3, one of my favorite passages in scripture is Genesis 3.15. It says this, God, so what happens, to give context, is Adam and Eve had sinned. The devil shows up many times in scripture as a dragon, a snake, has many different names. And he shows up as a snake in Genesis 2 and 3. And what he does is he convinces or, or challenges Adam and Eve to really question God, right? Because that's what the devil does. What's God really like? Or who does God say, really say you are? It's always his MO. And so he says, oh, did God really say you couldn't do that? Like, I think God's trying to keep good things from me, basically. And so Adam and Eve falls into the temptation, agrees to it, and they sin. And then what God shows up, what's awesome is he first doesn't address Adam and Eve. Before he goes over and says, what have you done? Like now there's spiritual death and separation. Now there's physical death that's gonna happen to you. You've ushered death into this world by this decision. Before he goes and addresses that, he first addresses Satan. And he leans down to the little snake on the ground. He says, listen up. He said, you might strike my heel, which for the record is a death blow because it's a poisonous snake in symbolism. And it's speaking of the death on the cross. Good news is our God raises from the dead. So you might strike my heel, but I will crush your head. So what Jesus says or what God the Father says in this context is he says, this isn't catching me off guard. God isn't going, oh no, like they sinned. I wasn't planning this. What am I gonna do? I gotta figure out a new plan. Like God isn't insecure. He's not an insecure leader, okay? He's quite aware of his power and authority in everything. And so what he says, he says, listen up, Satan. Plan A is still happening. You might cause pain to me, but don't worry. I'm going to crush your head. 
and I'm going to defeat you. And what we see in Revelation 20 is where Jesus takes Satan and throws him into a lake of fire for all eternity. We know the end of the story. We know that we have the victory through Jesus. Let's not pick the wrong team. Like we know that God is going to overcome Satan. But we have to be able to, to marry two extremes really well. Because in our society, I think our biggest temptation is to ignore the existence of God or of the devil. Like it's, like it's actually, the statistics are higher to believe in a God and even angels, but the statistics are lower for those who believe in the devil or demons when they both exist biblically. Like we know they're the real. And, and going back to the screw tape letters in chapter seven, there's a conversation that we see and I just wanna share that and it says this. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The patient is the Christian that they're trying to deceive. I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. The devil would nothing like nothing more than us just to adopt the beliefs of our Western culture that the spiritual realm isn't real. Let's do not fall to that, that lie. On the same token, though, let's not swing the pendulum to the other side and cessationize the devil, which our, our culture weirdly does too. It's both ends. You know, like the exorcist or whatever, and it's like, oh, the devil's big and he's scary and he's powerful. We even like, like him and we're intrigued by him. We want to you know, like we, we, we learn and be obsessed with demons and, and dark stuff, and we have this weird fixation on it. And we don't want to do that either. Both will not bring deliverance or healing or life to you. What we want to do is we want to be aware of the devil and be in awe of God. Be aware of the devil and be in awe of God. It's like us staring at a problem all the time if we just stare at the devil when the answer's right next to us, but we don't know how to get to it. What we do is say, oh, there's a problem. Okay, now let's look at the answer. Jesus, what do you say? We want to stare at the author and perfecter of our faith, not the enemy. I want to tell you a couple things about what he's like. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy is the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not playing games. He's not the tooth fairy or, you know, he's not like sitting on a cloud with cotton candy. I don't know whatever we think. Like, he's a real being who has real evil intentions for you. That's the sobering reality of who the devil is. In John 10, 10, it says, The thief, speaking of the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to steal your hopes, your life, your peace, your purpose, and then he wants to just kill you and destroy you. Nothing better is what he wants to do. But I want to tell you some things that he's not. The first thing that you need to know, and this is super important, is that the devil and God are not two equal but opposite forces. There isn't this big devil and this big God, and they're just going head to head, and we're going, who's going to win? And I hope, come on, God, you can, you can do it. No, okay? There is infinitely huge God and, and unfathomable and the devil, okay? So a couple things you need to know. First is God is omniscient. Satan is not. Omniscient means all-knowing. He knows everything, everything. The Bible says he knows every hair on your head. He knows you're coming and you're going. He knows everything in all of history, before history, post-history. He knows everything all the time. 
What we see in Matthew 4 and Job 1 and 2, as well as other places in Scripture, that Satan fails to know the future and other things, so his knowing is limited. It's limited. He knows stuff. He's, he's not a dummy. He's, he schemes, as we read. He's conniving. He's intentional. But he is not God. The Lord is divine. The Satan is not. Number two, God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. Satan is not. In Job 1, verse 6, the Lord asks Satan, where have you come from? And he actually says, from roaming through the earth. He is in a fixed position in the universe. When God is everywhere all the time. That like blows your mind up. I don't know if it, it does me. Me and my kids, we talk about this, especially my oldest, on a regular basis. And he's like, hold up, hold up. Like he's like everywhere all over the planet right now. Yep, the Lord is. But not just right now, but he's 2,000 years ago, right now, and 2,000 years in the future. He's everywhere all the time and all those times. Yeah, sure is. He's outside of space and time. There's no confining the Lord. But the devil is in a fixed position. So he probably isn't the one 99% of the time tapping on your shoulder trying to drive you crazy. Just to give you a little bit of encouragement. It could be the world. It could be the flesh. It could be the devil or demons. But that's, we'll get to that. The next one is God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Satan is not. The devil does. I want to make this really clear. The devil does have power. We know this because the Bible tells us this. We see in Scripture where he manipulates weather, causes disease and affliction, and can, can create some miracles. But what we see, though, as we study them, is that they're limited, and it's mostly more of a manipulation or a perversion of something that already exists. He is not a creator like the Lord is. Only God can speak and something exists. The devil cannot do that. The power of God and the power of Satan are not even remotely in comparison, okay? But we do see that Satan does possess some level of power. We see when Moses is going up against Pharaoh to let his people go, and they're going back and forth. You know, Moses turns through the power of God, turns a river into blood. The Pharaoh grabs a basin, has some of his ma ma magicians and different people come, and they do some witchcraft, and all of a sudden they turn a little little basin of water into blood. We see, um, we you know, we we see that, that throughout Scripture that the devil or demons can cause confusion, can be disorienting to people, can torment people can be like voices in one's mind speaking things that are not to be. Like we see that he can cause fear that produces anxiety and insecurity and depression. So the devil really does cause torment. But we also see in Matthew 4, Job 1 and 2, and many other places that his power is very much limited. It's like a dog on a leash. He has a little bit of room to roam, but there's someone holding the leash. And the Lord's not going to let him get too far away. And the last one about the devil is this. God is eternal, but Satan is not. And what I mean by that is this. Colossians 1 tells us that Satan was a created being just like humans. So he, wasn't, he hasn't always been. But we know from the Genesis story that in the beginning, there was God. He's never been created. He just always was. That alone puts them on totally different planes, does it not? So what I want to do is I want you to acknowledge this, that, the Satan, that Satan is real, that he does want to hurt us and destroy us, but he is no match for our Lord. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within the believer. So therefore, you have authority in God to overcome the power of the devil any day, any night, any week, any time. 
So Christians do not need to go around terrified. Those are movies, and they're a joke. In real war, we are victorious. In real war, we have tools from the Lord to overcome. And we know the end of the story because Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Isn't that crazy? Now think back to the Genesis 3 passage I shared earlier where God says, you might strike my heel, but I will crush your head. You know what God does? He's so kind that he says, not only is he going to crush the enemy's head, but he grabs the church with him in the victory and says, hey, let's go step on his head together. You're gonna get a victory and you're gonna get a victory and you're gonna be uh, overcome and you're gonna get breakthrough. He invites us into the overcoming lifestyle because of the spirit of God living within us. He shares it with us. Isn't that amazing? I, I think it's wonderful and you need to know this so you're not going around terrified. You know, the Bible tells us, do not fear more than any command. Do not fear. God does not want us going afraid of the enemy and thinking under every rock is the devil to jump out and get us. Like we, we're called to do not fear. And, mo, and of, of all the commands that God gives, that's the most given command. And tightly behind it, almost every time it says, because I am with you. Don't fear because I'm with you. You have, my, you have my spirit, you have my presence. You have nothing to fear. I often get questions about this, specifically when it comes around possession and oppression with demonic stuff. And a lot of times there's, again, movies are really bad theology setters. So don't look at movies, like read the Bible, okay, um, as a way to get theology on these things. But, and I don't claim to be like an expert on demiology or whatever you call it and, and all that. But what I would do is I'd like to share just an, an analogy that I think is helpful to bring some peace. So Imagine everyone for a moment that your soul, your being, who God's made you to be internally, is a house. Okay, we all are a house. If you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, it is the equivalent of you taking the deed of your house and signing it over to Jesus and saying, hey, it's yours, it's not mine anymore. That's what you did when you followed Jesus. So, if a demon or the devil shows up knocking, he can't come and just take over your house because the house is even yours to give it to him. It's the Lord's. And where light exists, darkness cannot. Right? So Christians don't need to go and, oh, I'm going to be possessed or I'm so scared or it's going to get me. It's not, it's not the boogeyman. It's all just tactics from the enemy to intimidate. It's all it is. It's, 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 it's funny once you start to realize what it is, how pathetic it is. How pathetic the enemy is. But I do want to let you know, and the reason why we even have this talk is can you leave a door open or a window open to your house and can someone come in and cause havoc? Can a robber come in or, you know, um, some, uh, you know, person who doesn't have a place to stay, like a homeless guy who, who has malintention comes in and just like takes over your house and starts eating your food and messing with you? Yes. Like you can expose yourself to things that are not good. Does that make sense? So what things your life as believers could open the windows and the doors of our soul that could cause oppression, meaning negative influence from the enemy. Things like that are unrepented sin. It could be addiction, occult, witchcraft. It could be sexual sin and brokenness. Some things could even be done to you, unfortunately. Like if you've been raped or abused, like you know what's attached to that action of rape and abuse? It's the lie that the enemy sows tightly to it that you're worthless and no good. You're just used goods. And all of a sudden, you start to believe this lie. You have this oppressive lie consuming your soul, saying, I'm not lovable. I'm no good anymore. And I want to say, anybody in this room that's experienced that, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You were valuable. You were loved. You were fought for. God wants to redeem you. And he wants to kick that oppression thing out. He wants to shut the window and give you new life again. Today's the day you can get restored. 
So you need to start thinking, God, what are the things I'm opening up in my life that make me expose the enemy in the way that can cause havoc and pain in my life? And I want to shut the windows and doors to those things. And lastly, I just want to give a couple practicals to how to fight. Is that okay? And this is my biggest and most important uh, rule. And I fear the devil. We fear the Lord. I'm going to say it, and I want you to say it with me. We do not fear the devil. We fear the Lord. You might need to tell yourself that a thousand times before it starts to stick, but you need to say it. The devil is not something to be intimidated by. And, and Proverbs 9, 10, it says, the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Like, we want to be able to acknowledge and understand the plans and the schemes of the enemy, but we don't need to fear him. We acknowledge him. We fear the Lord. We fix our eyes on the Lord. We're in awe of the Lord. And this fear isn't just for the record, like one, like God's going to smite me fear. This is almost like, I've heard it by John Piper say, it's almost like a fear of like, what would I do without him? It's actually the idea of like, what would happen if I didn't have the Lord with me? Like, what if he wasn't residing in my soul? What if he wasn't fighting the battle on my behalf? Thank you, God, that you are my defender. Thank you, God, that you walk with me and that everywhere I go, you go with me. Like, that's the kind of fear that God wants to rise up in our souls. And when you recognize that, that God is with you, then you're like, the devil, he's a joke. Yes, he's real. Yes, he has plans. But I'm learning how to defend those as I walk with the Lord. Number two is the trick of knowing what all this noise is, that, that barrage that's coming your way. How do you spiritually, in spiritual warfare, how do you learn to discern what it is and how to navigate it is really simple. And it sounds so silly, but it's this. Ask God. God, this is happening to me right now. God, I have this unusual, like this might sound weird, but on, on um, Friday, I had an unusual sense of sadness come over me and nothing bad had happened. Shelly and I, it's actually our date day, which is, and like, I don't know what's going on. I just feel unusually sad. And I believe to the core, it was spiritual warfare. I've been carrying this message on my heart for over a month, praying into this, saying, God, our people need to wake up and, and engage in the war. And I feel like I was under spiritual attack as I was preparing for this. And it came both on, on Friday, it was an emotional attack. And then yesterday I felt sick for like half the day for no reason. Nothing happened, I just didn't feel good. And I was like, what in the world? And then all of a sudden it went away. I'm like, what is happening? And again, I'm, I'm not saying everything is the devil. Everything is spiritual, right? But in asking God, God, is this the world? Is this my flesh? Is this the devil? What's going on here? The Lord's like, this is spiritual warfare because of this morning. God, his intent is to set so many people free today, to re-engage the army of God back into the battle. And so I felt it and I could feel it. So you ask God, what is this? The world, the flesh, the devil. Then I love this next question with it. God, what are you wanting to do about it? Who's the emphasis on? The Lord. Not first, okay, God, what do I do? I need to fix my problem. I need to figure out how to navigate this warfare. No, the battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, God, I'm experiencing this. What say you? How are you gonna defend me today in regards to this? Then you can follow up and say, okay, God, how do I co-labor with you in that? What does it like to me, for me to agree with you as we fight this battle together? Number three, I want you to hear this. Resist the devil. And James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan is resistible. And what's awesome is that he doesn't just kind of casually stick around and keep pestering you. He says he flees from you. In Jesus' name, go away. By the authority given to me, by the power of God that resides in me, the believer, Satan, I rebuke you and say, be gone. I'm not gonna entertain those thoughts anymore or those feelings anymore, or those lies anymore. You can resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Remember to put on the full armor of God and use your weapons. Obviously the weapon of his word, but also I want to introduce one more weapon. Worship is warfare. Worship is powerful. When you start to praise God and give thanksgiving to God and, and get your eyes fixed on God, it says that the, the praises of God, the, the, the presence of God inhabits the praises of God's people. So as you praise him, it says his presence, his spirit shows up. And it starts to edify and build up the believer who's worshiping. God shows up. If you are feeling really discouraged, I challenge you to begin to worship. I challenge you to start to declare truths and declaration songs of who God is. Just, just, just fix your eyes on him. And it doesn't mean that your circumstances have even changed yet. But you're just saying, I choose you, God. Battle belongs to you anyway, and this is who you are, and I'm just going to worship you. I think about David in Scripture. King Saul is being tormented by a demon. That's what it says. He's being tormented. And he can't find any peace. And they tried all different things. And finally, they have King, uh, they have not yet, shepherd boy David, not yet King David, shows up and he plays the lyre. He plays this little instrument. And it says he shows up and he begins to worship in the presence of David. And it brings un supernatural peace over King Saul. And when David would stop, he would become overcome again by, by demonic torment, being tormented again. But worship not that there was anything special about the, the, the song he played or the instrument that he was using. It was the, the fact that David was worshiping God and God's presence filled his praises and where God's presence is, it pushes out the enemy. You wanna push out the enemy in your life, start to worship the Lord. And 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat is fighting this battle and he is concerned because the army of uh, of the Moabs and some other groups that got together are coming against him. And he goes, I don't know what to do. It says, but he, he, he settled himself. I love that phrase. He settled himself on seeking the Lord. Are you settled this morning to seek the Lord for what you're facing? He says, he said, I'm, I'm not looking anywhere else. God, you tell me what to do about this conflict I'm about to fight. And he says, as he did, he says, they begin to worship. And as they worship, they worship through the night, the night. And then the next morning, their army plan this is what God gave him as a way out of worship. The army plan was, okay, Jehoshaphat, I want you to put together an army of worshipers. And I actually want you to send out the choir ahead of you. And it says the choir went out and as they worshiped God, it caused so much confusion of the enemy, the enemy turned on themselves and they killed one another and not a single one lived. They didn't even have to raise a weapon. They just worshiped and God did the fighting on their behalf. This is what God wants to do for us. And lastly, we're called to stand firm. We're not those who shrink back, but we're the forceful men and women of God who lay hold of the kingdom of God and, and bring it to earth and contend for it in our everyday lives. In 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10, it says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers through the world, uh, throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Who doesn't wanna be firm and steadfast? Being, being strong again, being built up by the presence of God. This is what he promises us. Will you stand with me? I'm gonna go ahead and invite our ministry team forward, please. But as we do, I actually wanna start response a little bit different this, this morning. I wanna read four passages of scripture over you. And these scriptures are truths about who God is for you. As you're facing real things, 
I don't know your story. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what temptations. I don't know what worldly pulls and, and, and pressures you have. I don't know what kind of demonic assignments are against your life. But what I do know is that God is our defender. I know that God wants to, to, to strengthen you and, and give you weapons armor to protect you and guard you. And so what I want to do is I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I'm just going to read these passages over you. And I'm asking as I do, it's like the spirit of God is just washing them over you and they're renewing your mind. They're softening your heart. They're extinguishing the arrows that maybe have stuck from the enemy and faith is riding out, rising up and they're, and, they're, and they're coming out of you right now in Jesus name. And you're finding that the Lord is meeting you right where you are. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, it says this, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Isaiah 41, 10. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God and I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 121 I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he, will, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. And lastly, Psalm 34, 19. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. I don't know if it's the world that's enticing you and you need to like let go of it. You're listening to too many voices from our culture and pressures from society. I don't know if it's sin that's unrepented and it has a, a foothold in your life and that the noise of sin and addiction and pain that you've given yourself to needs to be released and let go and, and, and ask God for forgiveness this morning. Or maybe you need to forgive someone else who sinned against you and that bitterness and that stronghold of unforgiveness is keeping you from moving forward and it's become a place the enemy is wreaking havoc. It's a window that's open in your soul. Or I don't know if there's actually an assignment from the enemy, though I believe we all have, unfortunately, assignments from the enemy, but what your assignment is is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But either way, this is a time and a place for you to respond to Jesus because the battle belongs to the Lord. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the, but the Lord is the one who delivers him from them all. Lord, I pray right now that today would be a day of deliverance. Today would be a day of healing. Today would, today would be waking up as the church, the army of God rising up and saying, oh, my head's no longer in the sand. I'm not gonna ignore the existence that there's a real spiritual realm that, that is, is having warfare going on and I'm called to engage with it and agree with the Lord and resist the devil so that he might flee from me. So God, would you raise up courage and mighty men and women of valor right now in Jesus' name. God, right now, I just ask that your spirit would come and you would just bring courage right now that we would not be okay with status quo or going through the motions or being numb. We choose no longer to be numb we fix our eyes on Jesus as we acknowledge the enemy's plans, but we, we behold and are in awe of Jesus. We fight back with all that we are. And we ask that you come and you bring the breakthrough. You come and you bring the victory as you defend us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.